listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Morning, everybody. I thought Stokes was about to start playing again. I was like, I cannot stand here for another whole deal. Good morning. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here uh, with you. I am one of the pastors here. Um, on staff. And if you would like to, go ahead before we pray, open up your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one out of the seat in front of you. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14, verse 53. That's also page 851 if you're in the Pew Bible. So let me tell you a quick story um, and then I'll pray. I, I don't know, I'm sure this has happened to all of you at some point in time, um, where you found yourself you can't put your finger on why, but you know something's wrong. Like something's out of place. Something's upside down, inside out. Something is not as it should be. Do you know what I'm talking about? Let me give you my best example of that, and then I'll tell you why I'm even bringing this up. I was probably early 20s. We'll say 23, okay? I'm going to the movie theater. At that time in Columbus, there were like five or six of them, and all of them had basically the same layout, all right? You walked into a foyer, bought your tickets, bought your popcorn, went into the movie. On your way into the movie, you could go to the left or to the right to go to the bathroom, right? All of the movie theaters had the men's bathroom on the left and the women's on the right. That was just how it was. Save one. I'm 23 years old. I'm at Hollywood Connection going to see a movie. Don't even remember the movie, but I will never forget this. I'm going to the bathroom. I'm completely by myself. I, I, I walk in, I turn, I open the door, I go in the bathroom, and immediately that feeling hits me. Something is wrong here. Something is off. Like, things are not as they should be. But I, being an extraordinarily self-confident person, brushed it off and said, on with going to the bathroom, I need not be late for my movie. I am not going to be graphic. It's a Sunday morning. If this was a youth service, I'd be a little bit more graphic. But let me just say this. As a guy, when we go to the restroom in the public bathroom, a lot of times we don't close the door behind us, okay? We just walk in. We leave the door open. It, it, if that is news to you ladies, welcome to guy culture. You're going to learn more than one thing today, all right? So I walk in and I start going to the restroom. Still have no clue what is off about this, but I know something's wrong. All of a sudden the door opens, okay? As a guy, a little concerned about my back to whatever may be coming in, I lean back to see what's going on. A woman and her, I'm guessing, 14-year-old daughter walk into the bathroom. Okay. Pride, self-confidence, over self-confidence is sinful. I responded quite sinfully. I kicked them out of the bathroom. I lean back, I smile and say, sorry guys, wrong bathroom. They turn around and leave, right? I finish using the restroom, turn around, wash my hands, as everyone should, and then it hits me. Then, like then, it hits me. I'm looking in the mirror, and do you know what I don't see in the reflection? A urinal. <laughs> that was it. It was there the whole time. I'd missed it. Something was, I walked in, something was out of place, something was backward. It was not as it should be. 
I, uh, I, w- I was sitting down with a student um, this week. We're, we're working through the book of the Exodus in high school and middle school. And he, he kind of jested, oh, that's funny. You wear your watch backwards. I wear my watch backwards. That's, that's funny. And I said, actually, there's a reason that I do that. This is going to make me sound more godly than I am. Let me preempt it with that, okay? I said, the reason I wear my watch backward is because every time I check it, it reminds me that my Savior led an upside-down kingdom. And, and, and let me tell you what I mean by that. Our Savior was born in an animal food trough, not in a padded bed. He decided that the people who followed him and would lead his church would be fishermen and common, not Pharisees. He spent time with prostitutes, thieves, and in general, the unjust, not the politically correct. It was backward. He washed feet. He didn't trample people with his feet. He wore a crown of thorns and not a crown of gold. That's my Savior. And it's backward and it's inside out and it's upside down. And as we read through God's word today and we see the utter humility of Christ and the cocky confidence of man, I I hope that that sticks in our minds and in our hearts. Pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in delivering your word. Father, that we have it. And, and, And really, God, I mean that in both the incarnational and the fact that you sent your word, your son, Jesus Christ, to dwell among us, to live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we should have died. But also, I I mean it in the material world. Thank you that we have pages in front of us. Page 851 can be sitting on our laps where we read about the beautiful redemption of a God who loves a broken, rebellious, hateful creation. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. And in many counts, it's unfair. And yet, you have shown grace to us. And so, Father, as we open up your word this Sunday, as as Springer prayed for other churches, I I pray for us here and anyone who's got the book in their lap, whether it's on an app, on a screen, or, or, or in paper in front of them, God, your word is living and active. You tell us it is. Our lives, if we have walked with you, proclaim that that is true. And so, may we not walk in commonly or casually. May, may we not treat this as a rigor or a rite or a ritual, but Father, as, as an opportunity for righteousness, an opportunity to, to put our eyes squarely on the cross of Christ and heavenward. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would lead us and guide us, that any word that would not be held and led by your Spirit would fall to the wayside, but that the truth of the gospel would be exuded. And so, Father, we, 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 we come to you asking for your help as we open up your word today. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. All right, so Mark chapter 15, verse 53 is where we need to be. <clears throat> and l- let me say this. I, I really only have two points. Um, two points in my sermon. I'll give them to you ahead of time. I like shopping at Publix. They, they load your cart for you, so I will do the same. I'm going to go ahead and load your cart. You don't have to worry about it. We can put it in the back of your car for you. One, our rebellion set, sets the stage for God's redemption. That's the first thing that I want us to realize. Our rebellion sets the stage for God's redemption. And then secondly, God's redemption stages our hope. God's redemption stages our hope. And then inside there, I'm going to tell you how to walk away from Jesus. I did not misspeak. That's what I'm going to tell you. All right. My hope is that you won't do that. Here's what I want you to realize. Now, 
in, in this context, everybody look at verse 53. And, and let's, let's begin. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. All right, now, let me give you a, a little bit of an idea. Let's leave Peter at the fire, okay? We're going to leave Peter warming up at the fire. We're going to come back to him. But I want you to understand what's going on here. So these three groups of people, the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes are meeting together. It was a group of people called the Sanhedrin. Now, what's going to happen is almost like a mock trial. It depends on what Bible you have. In mind, this is called Jesus before the council. Um, but what is basically about to happen is that Christ is about to be put kind of through a mock trial. I don't know how well you know the, the legal system here in Columbus um, or in the United States or whatever. I, I, I don't know a ton of it. Um, maybe you know it well. Maybe you were on your way to school and you needed to get there. Um, and all of a sudden you saw blue lights behind you. So you pull over and the police officer gives you a ticket and you say, I'm sorry, sir, what's the problem? And he says, you were speeding and you were going this fast. And you're like, there's no possible way that I could go this fast. So after getting the ticket the next day, you go and you try only to find out that your car doesn't actually have the horsepower necessary to achieve the height of speed that you were given the ticket for. So you decide you're going to go fight it in court, not realizing that as a 19-year-old, you're never going to fight a speeding ticket in court. Maybe you have that experience. Maybe. Maybe that's what you know of the legal system. And sometimes it's not fair. Sometimes it doesn't matter that prejudices are real. But the way that it worked in Jewish culture was this. There were 71 people that made up the Sanhedrin. There was a high priest. And whenever they met, sort of like the front of this stage, has a semicircle, the other 70 members would kind of surround him. And that's how they would have their, their, their presidings. It took 23 of them to make a quorum. In other words, there had to be at least 23 before anything was able to be decided. Now, here is why I am telling you this. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, the Bible tells us that Jesus was handed over by lawless men. In fact, uh, go ahead and throw that up there, Jim, and I'm going to go ahead and read it. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, in reading that, my typical reading of that is, okay, so Jesus was crucified by sinners. Okay, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with that. I get what you're saying in the book of Acts, Luke. I, I got that. But, but as I was reading this text, that last three words, the, the, or last five, the hands of lawless men came alive to me. I don't think this is just a broad scripture saying that because of sinners, Christ was crucified. That is true, but I think it is making a very specific claim. And it's making a claim to the lead up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it's saying it was done absolutely lawlessly. And the crazy thing about that is this. The ones who said you must abide by the law. Every letter of it. Don't heal that blind mute man on the Sabbath. You don't do that. It's the Sabbath. It's the law are the same ones who are willing for their own sake and to keep their own position to completely disregard every law that they are holding everybody else to. 
and the one who never broke any law finds himself willingly under it. It's incredible. So let's move on. I want you to see just how big it is. We're going to leave Peter at the fire. Here we go. And he was sitting with the guards, warming himself by the fire. Verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. This was not just a let's figure out what's happening with this guy. This was a we know what the end result needs to be. Now how do we fabricate the front end to get it there? But they found none. For many bore false witness against him. But their testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. All right, now two quick things. One, that's not what Jesus said. If you go back to John chapter 2, he didn't say, I will destroy this temple. He said, destroy this temple. And if you go there and look, what John 2 tells us is Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. The same thing that he refers to us as. The place where God resides, our bodies as a temple of the Most High God. Jesus was not talking about stone and brick and mortar and wood and iron. He was talking about himself, and he was saying, go ahead, destroy me, and in three days it will be rebuilt. They did very similar to what the, the snake did in the garden, took the words, twisted it a little bit, but this is the nature of this trial. They're going to do whatever they can to put Christ in a negative light. So they did this. They got the, scene, the Sanhedrin to de- together. They did it secretly. That's illegal. They met at the high priest's house. If you remember, that's where Peter's chilling at the fire right now. They meet at the high priest. That is not where they were supposed to meet. They were supposed to meet in the council of the assembly at the temple. I know that may not seem important to you, but what they did was, again, illegal. They didn't give people fair notice. And you could say, maybe they didn't need fair notice because it was a festival. But here's another problem. You couldn't have a trial during a festival. They don't care. The same ones who were all about following the law couldn't care less about following the law when it meant getting rid of Jesus. And then it goes even farther. Now, I want you to remember why I'm telling you this. It's because my rebellion and your rebellion and their rebellion is what sets the stage for God's redemption. It's what sets it. So they go a step further and they have people bear false witness. Now, that's a big deal. Why do we know it's a big deal? It was in God's top 10. You shall not bear false witness against your brother, right? There were over 600 laws, but that one makes the top 10. In fact, it was such a big deal, I won't put it up there now, but if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 19, the law that these guys knew, here's how it shook out. Let's say, all right, I'm going to use you, Kwame. Let's say Kwame is on trial for... I didn't think this ahead of time, so I kind of want to have some fun with it. Okay. Kwame is on trial for selling drugs. He said he wanted to help out with youth. No, he just showed up and he was selling drugs. Okay? Took his couple months to realize it. Poor leadership there. All right? So we figure it out, and now he's on trial for selling drugs. Okay? Well, all of these people start coming up, and they're like, yeah, 
Kwame was selling drugs. In fact, I remember seeing him Wednesday outside the back of the church trying to sell drugs to this guy. And then somebody says, they come in at different times. They're like, yeah, Kwame was. Because on Wednesday, I remember seeing him at the coffee shop. at this, And, and, and all of a sudden, it starts to, to come that people don't even care what Kwame really did. For whatever reason, they just don't like you anymore. It's time for Kwame to go. All right? And so they start lining this up. What Deuteronomy says is this, whatever the penalty for that trial would have been, if you bore a false witness, you received it. Now, this is a very important and beautiful piece of history because what it tells us is this. Remember the purpose of this, of this mock trial. They want Jesus gone, dead. So much so, that every one of these people that we read about who bear false witness are willing to die for it. Because the penalty of the one accused is applied to the one who is false. Unjust. Illegal. But then it goes a step further. The Sanhedrin couldn't care less. They did nothing with those who bore false witness. They break one of the top ten, and they couldn't care less because our rebellion sets the stage for God's redemption. And it goes on. <clears throat> yet even, this is verse 59, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it? that these men testify against you. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, that, that in Jewish culture would have been known to be God. And so he was basically saying, are you the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the son of God? He's asking him two different things. And really, in Jewish culture, it wouldn't have been phrased this way. He would have said it as a statement which is really a cool little piece of providence and prophecy. He would have said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. You are? Now, on one, we need to understand that these are two very different claims. They're connected, but they're different. People had claimed to be Messiah before. They didn't get killed. They were considered insane, right? But Jesus is doing something divine. The Son of God. God. He's doing something very different. And what happens next is this. Let, let me also just mention, as I'm building this case of a secret meeting in the high priest's house without notice during the festival with false witnesses that were not dealt with, we don't know for sure, but by the second century, just as we have the, you can plead the fifth, you know what I'm talking about? Like in a trial, somebody says, did you do this? You do not have to answer if it's going to cast you in a poor light. You can plead the fifth. The same thing was true. And yet the, the, the guy's name, when we read it in Matthew, Caiaphas, he's the high priest, doesn't matter. Jesus is going down. Because how do you convict an innocent man? You rig the game. How do you take down the one who is just and honorable and integral? You rig the game. This is not one of my points, but let me give you a freebie. 
I, I read this text to my wife, and I was like, tell me, tell me how this hits you. It hit her differently than it hit me. I think that's pretty common. Um, but, but she said, what it does is it encourages me that when I'm falsely accused, I can still respond in a godly way. I hadn't even thought about that. That here we have Christ being falsely accused, falsely accused, falsely accused. He doesn't say a thing about it. And the crazy thing about it is this. Jesus is being accused of this, right? Okay, we'll just say he's being accused of A. When you are falsely accused, and you will be, that's life. We, we live in a sinful world where whether it's in business or in family or in relationships, all of us, without fighting our sin, are jockeying for position. And so it is not uncommon for somebody to cast you in a negative light, whether or not you deserve it. doesn't matter. Welcome to a broken, sinful world. That's how it's going to shake out until Christ returns and fixes the place. Right? But, but here's the thing. We get like super bent out of shape about this. Somebody says, hey man, you said you were going to turn in this report on this day. And you're like, I didn't say I was turning in the report on this day. Doesn't matter, they were falsely accused. And here's what you've done. You've said, you know what, I may have committed sin A, C, D, and E. I didn't commit B. You're coming at me with B. Whoa, crazy guy. I did not commit sin B. Whereas Jesus is being committed, or is being said that he did sin whatever. And he's like, hey, I never sinned A. I never sinned B. I never sinned C. I never sinned D. I never sinned. You see, when, when we're casting a poor light, we're still sinners, right? Like when I get away with a speeding ticket, I still deserve a speeding ticket. Jesus never got away with one because he didn't need one. He always did what was right, and here he is on trial. When you find yourself falsely accused, take hope. Because how do you put an innocent man to death? You rig the game, and people around us are going to rig the game. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Verse 62, and Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He's talking about Daniel there, Psalms 110. And the high priest, Caiaphas, tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? In that day and time, if anybody blasphemed, they had to tear their clothes. It was like a sign of abject frustration at the sin that had been committed. By doing so, by doing this, he is more strongly than he could ever say, saying Jesus is a blasphemer, unholy, unfit, deserving of death. When I, when I read this text, however I read it as I've been growing up, and really what happens before and what happens after, I always felt like Jesus was kind of being dragged along, right? Like they come and they grab him, then they bring him before. Like they're, they're just putting Jesus wherever they want to put him. But this one verse gives me an incredible amount of hope and really opens my eyes to the truth of it. When Jesus says, I am you know what that tells me? It tells me that as much as it looks like the world had their hands all over him, telling him where he would go and what he would do and what questions he would answer, Jesus being manhandled by the world, the moment he responds and says, I am the Messiah and I am the Son of God, what that shows me is hands at 10 and 2. 
That Jesus, as much as it looks like life and the world is throwing him around, has never taken his hands off the steering wheel. And the same thing is true in your life and the same thing is true in my life. That when it feels like I'm being bounced around and thrown around, Jesus still has his hands on the wheel. And when my job doesn't make any sense or when I lose my job, or when my marriage feels like it's falling apart, Jesus has not let go of the wheel. When we can't figure out what's going on with our kids and we're heartbroken because of the decisions that they're making or the decisions that we're not making, that they're not making, Jesus' hands are still on the wheel. He never lets go as much as the world may cause us to think that he does. Our rebellion our sinfulness sets the stage for his redemption. That's kind of a heavy place to be where I left us. He tears his garments. Verse 64, they all condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. They blindfold him and hit him in the head and say, tell me who did it. If you really are the son of God, you would know. And the guards received him with blows. But his hands are still on the wheel. He's never let go. He's still in control. He's exactly where he's choosing to be because of how much he loves me. Let's come up for air for a minute, okay? I want to tell you how to walk away from Jesus. There's a, there's a book um, called How to Mess Up Your Kids. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't read it yet. I think I'm going to. Um, but why did y'all laugh at that? I was being serious. I read. I read books. I like movies more, but I read books. Um, and uh, it, it, it's called How to Mess Up Your Child. I was given a copy, and I, I was spending some time for about a week with a grandfather and his wife, his his son was in a marriage that ended very, very sadly. His wife, um, if, I, if I remember correctly, uh, was strung out on drugs, wanted to have nothing to do with her husband or her children. And so as good grandparents and parents of their son, they intervened in that family. They stepped in. The girls didn't have a mother, so grandma became that mother. And they, and they were spending time with them. Well, he had this book. And it, it was sitting on his, you know, on his desk or his nightstand or something like that. And his nine, I'm guessing nine-year-old uh, granddaughter walks in and looks at the book and goes, Grandpa, why would you ever want to read a book about how to mess up your kids? Why would you do that? And he just smiled at her and he said, sweetheart, it, it, it's sarcastic. It, it's, it's using kind of a reverse to make a point. Nobody wants to mess up their kids. And I want to do the same here. How to walk away from Jesus. I, I'm going to use this in a reverse. I'm going to give you a few points. And, and the reason that I, I want to do this is because I think Peter gives us a great example of this. So if you remember, Peter has been walking with Christ. If you remember up to this story, he was willing to die for Christ, cut an ear off of a guy. Jesus reprimands him. Chill out, Peter, right? 
He, Jesus is carried off. The disciples begin to scatter. But we find that Peter, and this is what I read to you at the beginning, and I said, let's leave him at the fire. We find that in verse 54, Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. I'm going to give you the four steps to walking away from Christ. And let me just say this. For those of you who may not have a relationship with Christ yet, or for those of you who have relationships with people who do not have a relationship with Christ yet, I am starting with somebody who is claiming to have a walk with Christ. We can't walk away from something until we're first standing next to it, right? So when I, I'm going to give you four steps. The first two are basically dependent upon you, you guys, you type people who show up at church, make some type of claim toward Christ. I'm going to tell you how to walk away. And we're going to use Peter as our example. Most of the time, it's our posture and our proclamation that does this. Typically, it's our posture first, and then we start to proclaim what's going on in our hearts. So step one, commit your life to Jesus. Again, you can't walk away until you're standing next to him. I want you to understand that Peter was an exceedingly committed disciple. So much so that just, oh gosh, how long ago was it? Three hours ago? He was willing to die for Christ. When, it, it depends on what commentaries you look at. Just to give you full disclosure here. Some people say that Peter is already begin, beginning to walk away from Christ because he's distancing himself. I don't personally believe that's the situation. And I'll tell you why. Because the, the text reads, he walks right into the court of the high priest. This is a simple fisherman trespassing on private property. And not just anybody's private property, a priest's property. And not just any priest, the high priest priest. This took courage. I don't believe that this is Peter's beginning of walking away. I still believe that this is a guy who is committed to his Savior. He's walking into harm's way. He's stepping out. Verse 29, even though all fall, I will not. Verse 31, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. This was a simple fisherman, but he was committed to his Savior. Step two, and here's where we're going to pick up on verse 66. Become casually indifferent with a low view of commitment and get some distance. Become casually indifferent with a low view of commitment and get some distance. Look at verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. A lot of times people bash on Peter because it only took a little girl to cause him to step away from his faith. She ranked higher on him in the hierarchy. She was a servant, yes, but she was a servant of the high priest. He was a fisherman. She still ranked higher. That's a free tidbit for you. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servants, servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out of the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Now, what we don't have is him talking about Jesus by name. What we don't have is an ardent denial. All we simply have right now is some indifference. I don't know what you're talking about. This, this is when we, and, and I really want this to be something that you grasp, because here's the truth. While it is the responsibility of the pastors to shepherd and oversee the flock here, it is not solely our, responsi our responsibility. God has called us together as a people, as a church, 
And that's why on our one another meetings, we go through the one another. It's, it's not just me as a pastor saying, I'm there for you. It's you saying left and right in the pew, I'm here for you, to support you, to hold you accountable, to convict you, to encourage you. We're here together, arm in arm, walking this together. That's why this is important for you. It's not just stuff that pastors need to know. How can we find out if people are leaving the church and walking away from the faith? How do we... Uh, we all need to know this if we really care about the bride of Christ. And just to let you know, statistically, I think the, the most recent research that I saw was about 150,000 people a week walk out of the church. 150,000 walk out every single week. This Sunday, gone. Next Sunday, gone. It's not my intention to paint a bleak pic picture for you. It's not. That's just the reality. But the majority of those say that if one person invited them back, they would. If one person was willing to be that one another who reached out to them, they would. We become casually indifferent with a low view of our commitment. This is when we begin to downplay. We get the phone call from somebody, hey, didn't see you at church. And, and please understand, this doesn't just apply to church attendance. It applies to our time in the Word. It, it, it's when you get in bed and you're like, you know, I haven't really spent time, you know, I'll, I'll double down tomorrow, Okay. I'm going to double down tomorrow. I'll spend extra time. I'll even pray on top of it. Heck, I might even fast in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm excited about this not being committed now, but being committed later. This is when we begin to downplay. We get the phone call. Hey, miss, you haven't seen you. Yeah, we're, you know, just, just busy. A lot's going on. We begin to assume the steps. What, what I mean by that is this. We know that God, through his word, has given us means of grace. The body of believers, his word, prayer, evangelism, things that both draw us to him and what's responding to him, carry us from him in sanctification and becoming more like Christ, right? We, we, we know that is true, but we begin to assume those steps. It's just going to happen. He who began a good work in me is going to bring it out to completion. So I can grab my lemonade, chill out, blah, blah, blah. He's going to do it. And, and, and it begins to tickle. The worst injury I've ever had in my life was a step that was assumed. I'm being literal here. I think about it every, I, I cannot wait to move out of our house to get away from that dumb brick step moving from our entranceway into our kitchen. Because every time I see, I mean that, I walk up and down that thing, I don't know how many hundreds of times a week. Every time I step it, what runs through my mind is the time my ankle flipped and all of my ligaments ripped. I hit the floor, my wife runs in because she hears me moaning in pain. I, like a little pansy, sit in my wife's lap. <laughs> I literally have this thought run through my mind. Will, you're pretty young. You're in good shape. You haven't worked out lately, but you're in relatively good shape. You're not going to have a heart attack. That's what we're, It was the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. I'm stitched up now. Modern medicine. Praise God for that grace. But it was a little six-inch assumed step. Why pay attention to it? It's just naturally going to happen, right? I, 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 mean, I mean, I love Jesus. Look, look, look I, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. It's just a very casual kind of downplaying. That's his first step. And we see him move into the gateway. He begins to put his back to his Savior and step away. Peter begins thinking about his escape, his escape route. How do I get out of this situation? 
Number three, confess your lack of need for Jesus. Confess your lack of need for Jesus. This is where everybody gets to be on the screen now. Because it doesn't matter whether you have claimed that you are following Christ or not. All of us at some point in our life have, set, have sat at step number three. It is our default nature to, to, to act as though we do not need God, we do not need Jesus. All of us have been at step three. Confess your lack of need for Jesus. Let me, make, let me say a word on evangelism and how we do it. If this is regional, so be it. I was born like 10 miles from where I'm standing right now. I lived here. And so if my experience is buckle belt of the, uh, of the what's, what, are we, what do we live in? The Bible belt? Yeah, the bu- you said the buckle of the Bible belt. There we go. If my experience is simply the buckle of the Bible belt, fine. But if the shoe fits. I think the way that we see evangelism is exceedingly unhelpful, unbiblical, and, and to be quite honest with you, disheartening and depressing. Because as I was growing up, here's how the gospel was typically presented to me. I can't tell you how many pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers I've had in my life. There are too many to list. I would say the vast, vast, vast majority of them being very well-meaning. But here is how the gospel was presented to me through evangelism. If you died today, Why are y'all laughing? This is serious. I'm talking about death. You know what I'm going to say. If you died today, do you know without a shadow of a doubt where you would go? Now, as we giggle at it, let me say that that is a legitimate thing to say. Okay? But it's not the whole thing. You see, when we take evangelism and we lump it into only the eternal, and I know that's a funny thing to say, only the eternal, what we do is we minimize our lives now. We, we take it and we look at the gospel and we say it is something that can rescue you. It's an orange mon- uh, monopoly, get out of jail free, that's monopoly, right? It's an orange monopoly, get out of jail free card. And we treat evangelism like it only matters if you're on the doorstep of death. But the reality is this, if I have 75 years left, I need Jesus today. If I am, if I am at step three, I, I, have, I do not need Christ. I am saying it. Your, your neighbor is saying it. Your father is saying it. Your child is saying it. I'm living life my own way. This is how it appears in the room over there. It's people saying, look, I get this. I even believe that Jesus existed. But I'm living for me now, and I'm going to live for God later. And we smile and we jest and we think, oh, how immature. What a childish thing to say. Those teenagers. When we're the exact same way, we just church it up. They're at least honest. Right? I mean, they're at least just saying, here's the deal. I don't think it's worth it. We live as though it's not worth it, but won't let that come out of our mouths. Again, I'm not casting this on all of us, but if the shoe fits, is the way that we evangelize, is the way that we share the gospel only important and privy for death? 
Or do we realize that if we've got 50 years left, I still critically need Jesus today. If I've got five days left, I don't need Jesus in five days. I critically need Jesus now. Because when we treat the, the gospel that way, what we do is we take all these pages of our Bible and we just start pulling them out. And we say, who cares about the hope in this world? Who cares about the faith that he tells us he will give us in a faithless situation? Who cares about the ability to overcome difficulty? Who cares about his promise to watch over my marriage? Who, who cares about all of these things that Jesus says, I will do if you will follow me? We act as though Jesus is worthless unless you're about to die. Is that what we really think? Is Jesus valuable to you today? Because if he is, we'll evangelize that way. It doesn't matter if you're dying today or in a hundred years. I want you to know Jesus today. Because it's going to change your life. And it's going to make tomorrow better. <clears throat> Number four. Oh, I didn't even read you the verse. I'm sorry. Conf confess your lack of need for Jesus. He denied it, saying, I neither know or understand what you mean. He went out into the gateway, verse 69, and the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. That was step three. If you look in Matthew, it says he took an oath and said, I do not know him. Now Jesus is being brought into the picture. Step four, display absolute defiance and absence. This is where your ideals have completely 180 shifted. The things that you used to live for, the things that you used to love, you are now rejecting. Now let me say this. I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning after coming to church, growing up, and says, you know what, I think today I'm going to confess my lack of need for Jesus. It's that little assumed step. It's the little things. And then... We find ourselves, and this is my experience, guys. I, I haven't been a pastor as long as Brad, but I've been a pastor for a pretty good while. And this is what I've seen in people, whether it's church attendance or spending time in God's word or praying or evangelizing or making their lives count or leading their family, whatever it is. It's this slow stepping away until finally they no longer want to pick up the phone when they see you calling. The Bible isn't something that they're even convicted about picking up. It's that thing that they're frustrated about because maybe something happened in life that caused them to get bitter. Or maybe it was an assumed walk. But now Peter takes it to the extreme. And so do we. Verse 70, again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them. You're a Galilean. We can tell from the way you're talking, you've got an accent. You had to have been with Jesus. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. I don't think he was throwing out four-letter words. What I think he was doing was basically saying, if I was a follower of Christ, kill me now. I'm telling you, I am not. I don't believe in the man. I don't want anything to do with the man. You are mistaken. And if you are not, Destroy me. And within a matter of hours, we see somebody saying, I will die for Jesus. 
to I don't need Jesus to die for me. Hours. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. That'd be a good place to wrap it up, wouldn't it? We can all walk out depressed at at how busted up we are and how people are turning their backs on the gospel and We've got to know what the disease is before we can have a cure. We love the dawn because of the darkness. You see, we we have to immerse ourselves in the hopelessness of this situation and our situation before we can rightly look at hope. So now I want to encourage you. Now I want to give you hope. Now I want your eyes to be lifted up from this man who turned his back with cursing, just like many people that we know on their Savior, and I want to instill you with hope. I want to make you excited. I want you to realize that while our rebellion sets the stage for God's redemption, God's redemption stages our hope. That's the final point. God's redemption stages our hope. I'm going to make fun of two people in this room. And I asked them if I could ahead of time. So I'm pretty excited about it. Peter is left here, doubled over, crying. There's a song. I don't know, do we sing it? Grace Like Rain? We sing that. We sing, help me, come on people. Do we sing Grace Like Rain? It's been a while? Okay. Y'all know the song I'm talking about? Peter is on his knees, broken, remembering what Jesus said before the, the cock crows two times. The rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered. Peter is on his knees, and tears are falling. How could I, how could I turn my back on my Savior? How, how could I ignore this man who has loved me for years needlessly? How could I do that? You see, as his tears fell, so too did the grace and mercy of God on him. The beauty and the grandeur of God's redemption is that none are too far gone. And that is a message that I personally need to know. If you had told me years ago that the guy that my wife and I went to high school together, that the guy who she said was a bad guy, like this is how she remembers him in high school, he was nice to me. But everybody knew he was a bad dude and he was kind of really big into the drug scene. If you told me that that guy was going to be sitting four rows back in a church, I would have said forget about it. If you would have told me that the guy who all I remember of in high school was stealing forks out of the cafeteria. It's all I remember of him. We had drama together. 
He was, he, was, he was good at acting, but what I remember about this guy was that every day he would leave lunch and steal a fork for whatever reason. If you told me that he would be here and that would be, he would be one of the first guys that helped get our leadership team and youth ministry started, I would tell you that you're crazy. All of us have people in our lives that we think are hopeless. All of us have people in our lives that we think are too far gone. But what I want to tell you, what I want to promise you is this. If Peter is not too far gone, they are not too far gone. If Paul, who is willing to kill Christians, can have the scales fall off his eyes and become the guy who establishes the church, forget about it. God can save anybody. Anybody. And it's his redemption that stages our hope. Let me give you three thoughts and I'm going to close this in prayer. One, God's redemption stages our hope. Our faithful witness of Christ is most important in our simple and ordinary actions. Peter was standing around a campfire with some soldiers and a girl. You are standing around the water cooler or you're surrounded by a bunch of kids your stay at home. Maybe you're homeschooling. You're, you're going to school somewhere. It is your ordinary and simple actions that are the greatest and the most profound witness of Christ. I think everybody wants to figure out what is this huge thing I need to do with my life for Christ? I would say you need to live for Him in a very ordinary and simple way. Number two, not even the best Christian or lead apostle is immune to faithlessness. Don't, astu- don't assume the six-inch step. Don't allow yourself to become casual with your faith. Because if it can happen to Peter, it can happen to you. It can happen to me. No one is immune to faithlessness. Finally, nor are they beyond the promise of grace. You could, you could argue, point to with me, and you could say, well, none will be plucked from his hand. He who began a good work in you will work it out to completion. And I would tell you that a tree is known by its fruit. And I would tell you that, that while true salvation is not earned, true salvation is expressed. True salvation is not earned, but true salvation is expressed if the shoe fits. if you were to go to the Middle East today, to the place where this trial began, to the place where men met in secret in a lawless way to put to death an innocent man by rigging the game, if you went to Caiaphas' house today, it wouldn't be there. Because built on the site is a church. It's the church of St. Peter. The ve- I, I love the beautiful story that, that God writes for us. The one who is so far gone, hopeless, was brought back. That church is one it's not going to stand forever. But right now it stands as a testament to the fact that in the very place where we 
reject and turn from God, we can turn our hearts right back to him. I think it's one of my favorite things about God. It doesn't matter where you are on those four steps of walking away. It doesn't matter if you've turned your back and you've been walking away from Christ for 20 years or 30 years. It takes one moment, one step, one cry out, one tear falling to get right back in a right relationship with God. Because the greatness is not in our repentance. The greatness is in his redemption. And Father, that's my prayer. Y'all pray with me. Our hope is not in our works. It's not in what we could do. We could never do enough. Our hope is not in, even in our ability to repent and hold through. Father, while true salvation may not be earned, it is expressed. And so, Father, I pray that we would recognize the greatness of your redemption, that no matter where anybody is in this room right now, no matter how far gone they are, that they can come back to you today. Because we don't just need Jesus in 50 years or in 50 months or in 50 days or in 50 hours. Jesus, we need you now, critically. And Father, I pray for those in our lives that we've given up hope on. I pray for those people that we have assumed are too far gone. We haven't lost faith in them, God. Ultimately, we've lost faith in you. We've lost faith that you have the power to turn that heart. We've lost faith in ourselves to hold firm and continue to hold out the truth of the gospel in life. And so, Father, I pray that you would encourage us. I pray that you would encourage them, Father, that, that today a phone call would be made. That today an email would be sent or a conversation would be had. that says, I know that you've been gone I know that you've walked away, but I want you to know that I love you and God loves you and he would call you back to himself. Father, we're in this together. I pray that we would walk hand in hand. And God, I just thank you. I thank you that even though our rebellion is real, it set the stage for your redemption. And it's your redemption which sets up hope. May we be a people who live with hope. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.